Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and join us today. As the name says, we are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, our small business owners, our local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have the business creators who help others grow their businesses and on the other side of that coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who love to have your own hands on the marketing levers as you grow your business. If you are one of the above, in fact, if you are more than one of the above, many of us, including me, are all four of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Now today, uh, before we get into this, I just want to share a couple other things. Make sure to check us out at www.businesscreatorsradioshow, and also check us out on iTunes, where over 190 episodes await your immediate perusal. Be sure to subscribe. Fresh content will arrive in your iTunes every Tuesday, and every five-star rating helps us serve more business creators just like you. Today's going to be a little bit of an interesting show. Uh, we have somebody on Business Creators Radio who we've been trying to pin down for a long time on a topic that many of you have demanded, and uh, the thing is, we get exactly 51 minutes with her, so we're going to have to make these counts. And then after she hops off, uh, we'll, we'll, you and I will just spend the last few minutes together here with some thoughts that I have on the topic. So what I want to do right now to make sure we get the most of our time with her is introduce our guest, Stephanie Chung of profit like a girl on the topic of high ticket selling made simple so before i read your bio say hi say hi stephanie hello everybody and thank you for that warm welcome adam i'm excited to be here you bet you bet so let me just tell our audience a little bit about you for those who are still uh, getting getting to know you um stephanie chung is based in dallas uh, her company, Stephanie Chung & Associates, offers sales training, executive coaching, and small business mentorship services nationwide. Among her products is the High Ticket Selling Made Simple course, the topic we're going to talk about today, designed to help small business owners sell more and make more. As a former sales executive in the aviation and private jet industry, Stephanie has mastered the art of high ticket selling and has mentored, coached, and developed some of the highest paid, most elite sales professionals in the country. Serving business leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals, Stephanie Chung uses her proven executive coaching and sales training expertise to get the job done. Chung is an executive coach, trainer, and advisor backed by more than 25 years of team management, business development, and sales leadership experience. Chung is also a public speaker, a contributor to ABC, CBS, NBC, and author of Profit Like a Girl, A Woman's Guide to Kicking Butt in Sales and Leadership. That's a title I definitely have to pick up for myself. And Embrace the Suck, How to Grow and Succeed in Business. You can obviously visit her website at www.stephaniechung.com. So, Stephanie, we've read off this very impressive bio that is just so stellar that it makes me wonder if I'm even qualified to be on the show with you, and it's my show. But uh, what we want to do before we dive into uh, today's topic, which is high-ticket selling made simple, is just tell us a little bit from your own story about uh, the journey you've taken that has led you down this path that I just described toward the intersection 
of the brilliance and passion from which you serve business creators today. Absolutely. So uh, thank you. Again, thank you for having me, Adam. So it's interesting because I, I literally grew up a military brat. So I have a very interesting background. Um, so, you know, I grew up on active military bases. My dad was in the U.S. Air Force. So I was that kid that moved every two years of my life all over the place, right? So I always say I'm, I'm from everywhere and yet nowhere, right, <laughs> because I don't have one specific place that I can call home. But because I was always on active uh, Air Force bases, I grew up around planes. I literally grew up around planes and jets and things nice. of that nature. So I knew that I wanted to do something in the aviation space. Um, so when I first, you know, got in my first, very first career uh, or my very first, um, you know, where I worked was I worked for the airlines. And I started out doing customer service or sometimes, you know, slugging luggage uh, downstairs on the ramp and doing operations and all that good stuff. I eventually then moved into sales. And so that's kind of the first glass ceiling I had to break. So I moved into the sales arena working for the airlines. Um, and, you know, I was 25 years old and I had a $25 million quota. And that ended up being the smallest quota I've ever had in my entire career. After I worked wow. in the airlines as a salesperson for a few years, I then was recruited into the private jet arena. And, uh, you know, I ended my career there running a sales team where we sold nearly a billion dollars. That was our quota every single year. And, uh, and about four years ago, I left the corporate arena, decided, you know what, what I've done for a living is to raise up high-ticket salespeople, develop them, coach them. You know, these folks are making half a million dollars, $750 million, or what have you. And so not only do I know how to sell at a very high level, you know, being a person who sold private jets myself, but more importantly, I know how to produce those people who sell really high-ticket items. And so uh, I decided to leave corporate and started my own business where I could actually start to teach and mentor whether it's entrepreneurs or elite salespeople, you know, just I could expand my, um, you know, territory, if you will, or expand my impact by not just working for one company, but being able to work with as many companies or individuals as I like in order to share with them the skill set that I was so fortunate and blessed to be able to um, receive over my past 25 years in business. So that's a little bit about myself. Wow, and I tell you, that's quite a story, so thank you very much for sharing that with us. Uh, as we dive into this topic of high-ticket selling, very popular among our listeners, which is why we brought you on the show here, uh, let's start by defining our terms. Uh, Stephanie, what does high-ticket selling mean to you? You know, that's a great question. And one of the things I've had to adjust really what the meaning was to me, because obviously if you're in private jets, you know, you may be selling something that could be $10 million or $50 million. And so that to you becomes your normal perception of high ticket selling, right? But once I opened up my own executive coaching practice and started to work with business owners or, you know, uh, sales teams that perhaps didn't sell ticket items of that level, what I've now decided and redefined high ticket selling and really what that means to me, and I think this will resonate with your listeners, is really out of, it really comes down to, I work with those folks whether it's an individual or an owner, that has not the cheapest product in their space, right? So if you've got right. the bottom feeder cheapest product, I'm really not the person for you, you, you because that's price-driven and it's a fast, you know, fast downhill, downhill spiral, right? But what I do is work with those business owners or, um, you know, business companies that they really do sell most likely the highest ticket item in their particular space. 
So you don't have to have a $50 million product. Maybe you're, you know, selling something that is $20,000, but it's really on the high end in your industry. And so, therefore, I define that as high-ticket selling for you. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, that just makes me think. You know, if you're the lowest priced in your market, that tells me, you know, all things considered, you're likely either commoditized or you're underselling yourself. So I love to hear that, especially since we're talking about the high-ticket selling. So uh, this is a very challenging area for people, the idea of selling the high-ticket items. Uh, there's a lot of mind junk that gets in the way. There's a lot of uh, belief that they're just not worth it or that they can't justify that price or they melt in the face of objections like, wow, that's expensive. So uh, from your perspective, mm -hmm. being the subject matter expert, Stephanie, what are some of the challenges that people face that you've seen when selling high-ticket items? Well, you know, you hit it on the head, and it's a really good point. It's something I spend a lot of time with uh, when I'm working with clients because your mindset is huge in this process. A lot of times people just focus in on what's the amount of the ticket item. That's like that's almost a moot point if your mind isn't in the right space in order to command a high price, right? So what I always tell people is the very first thing we have to tackle is your own financial beliefs because we all have them, and our financial beliefs really come from our upbringing and our past experience and what we've been exposed to. So if you're that kind of kid, you know, I grew up a military brat. We weren't by any stretch rich, right? So if you're the kind of kid that, like myself, that grew up with hearing things like, you know, turn off the lights, money doesn't grow on trees, or <laughs> eat everything on your plate, there's kids, you know, starving wherever, right? So if you've kind of grown up like that, well, that actually starts to impact your financial beliefs. And so when you're dealing with high-ticket selling or at least trying to command the highest price for your particular space, it's important that you acknowledge that you have financial beliefs and then that you control those financial beliefs so that they never, ever, ever enter the conversation when you're dealing with a prospect because never, ever is, is it acceptable as a salesperson or a business owner to ever impart your financial beliefs onto your buyer. It has no place in the conversation. So you really have to make sure that your mindset is ready and able to accept the fact that, you know, it's really about what's going to be best for the buyer. So I'll give you an example, Adam. When I first started selling private jets or at least being around, you know, they're not even high net worth individuals. They're like uber wealthy individuals, right, the 1% of the 1%. And so all of a sudden I'm in their space, and I didn't grow up with that kind of money. I've never seen that kind of um, access. And so sometimes I remember one particular case, uh, one of the very first calls that I had, I had gone to a customer's house who lived in Palm Beach, and um, when I went in the home, the home seemed really familiar to me, and it was a beautiful home, right? And so I'm looking around, and, and the wife is, you know, giving me a tour of the home, and the home was incredible. And I said to her, I said, I feel like I've been here before, which is really odd. And she goes, oh, yes, that's because we're on the cover of Architectural Digest today, right? And so I thought, right. okay, well, that, you know, that explains it. And so she can to say, I said, well, it's funny, I, the reason why I'd seen her home, Adam, is that weekend I had gone to Borders, uh, Barnes & Noble, you know, and I was looking at all these different 
magazines because my husband and I were doing some uh, renovations in our home. Now, I wasn't at the point where I could, you know, go and hire some multi-million dollar interior de designer. I was just going to do it myself, right? So I was grabbing all these different, um, you know, articles and magazines, and that's why her home seemed familiar because I was drawn to that cover. And then I started to look and, you know, uh, look at her home, and it was beautiful. So while I'm there in her house, she goes, well, let me call my designer. He'll work with you on your home. And I'm thinking, oh, no, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I'm selling private jets, but I'm not buying private jets, right? <laughs> and so, so, you know, you really have to start to think like, okay, she, in her mind, she and I were equal, but certainly there was a very big difference as to where I lived versus where she lived and what her world was. But, you know, it's just important whenever you're dealing with your prospects that you just don't, you don't put the mindset there. You just don't go there, you know. You've got to act like you've been right. there before. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, since you mentioned this, I'll just share very briefly uh and I didn't realize until years later, and somebody pointed this out to me, that ironically, it was part of my own drive that got me caught in this loop. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because you mentioned that many folks, when they're growing up, they're told money doesn't grow on trees, uh, make sure to turn the lights off when you leave the room, and things like that. And I was brought up in similar circumstances. Uh, it turns out, now that I'm an adult, I found out that my parents were much better off than I thought they were. They were just um, doing some mm -hmm. different things with their money, which explains why they're very well off now. I mean, they're going into retirement with absolutely no worries for the rest of their life. But I'm finding out now that it was a 40-year journey to get there, and that journey began while we were kids. So, um, mm. for, for, so, so, for, so one of the things that I ran into is uh, they wanted to buy me the cheapest clothes available and cheap usually translates into ugly because that's where you go to the, uh, the three dollar racks with the ridiculous uh collars that went out of style 20 years ago and uh and, and this mindset kicked into the point where i remember one time i i'd gone through a growth spurt and suddenly i could not even pull up my jeans i mean literally could not get them beyond my hips which means i couldn't get them up to my waist and i couldn't button them so i needed a new pair of jeans and my mother's answer was just wear them. That's how much they, did, that's how much they didn't want to spend money on clothes. So uh, here, so so if I can roll back just slightly, I was raised in a very rural country area, which is part of the reason that the the country is now a place I visit, but I don't even spend the night. Um, and uh, even when I was very young, I had an ambition to get a little grass cutting business going. Little hard to do when uh, each property had uh, an average of an acre. I mean, there's only so far you could push that little lawnmower, and uh, everybody had riding lawnmowers, so I couldn't even get a little grass-cutting business going. Um, I used to wait for the penny saver every week because I thought the idea of work from home and stuff envelopes was an actual business opportunity. Uh, so as you can see, I was kind of bent on getting my own money coming in. I couldn't wait to turn 16, get a car, and get a job. And uh, the, reason be the reason being is um, if they weren't going to buy me uh, clothes that I would feel good wearing when I uh, had to go to school, I would work and buy my own. Uh, they mm. told me I didn't have to do that, and I said, oh, yes, I do, because I, I don't want to wear 
things with 1970s collars on them that grandma thinks she's cool because that was during her childhood. That just isn't going to work for me, and I don't want my aunt's hand-me-downs or anything like that. I mean, these are these are people that um, that took the idea of frugality to a very big extreme. I mean, I recognize now as an adult why they were doing it and how, and how the whole family benefits from the fact that they did it now. But as a kid, when you wanted to wear cool clothes, I mean, I, so I wanted to get my own job, buy my own stuff. And, uh, and what I said to and my that's... parents was, you know, what I said to my parents was, is, uh, okay, so now since you have this little fund you're putting together to contribute to our college, now you don't have to worry about buying me clothes. I'll take care of that myself. So you're welcome. I mean, that's the way I phrased it when I was 15 <laughs> years old. Here's the trap I got into to cut to the chase. Um, I was working hourly jobs in fast food. So it got burned into my mind the first time in my life that real money was coming in. So you put forth time, you put forth hours, you put forth physical effort, and then exchange money comes in. So the dollars for hours mindset got burned in as the foundation of my understanding of making money. It took me 15 years to break out of that. Mm, that's powerful, Adam. That is powerful. And But at least you can say you broke out of it. Right. Yeah. Eventually, you know, because eventually how many entrepreneurs – how many entrepreneurs are still struggling in that area? And, you know, when people have money, they just look at money differently. And they don't look at it as, you know, the money per hour, right? That's definitely, to your point, that's a different mentality. Right. Wealth pe people who have a tremendous amount of wealth really are always looking at how do I make my dollars reproduce themselves, right? How do I make my money yeah. work for me and, you know, and minimize my time, right? So it's, um, it, it's a very different mentality. And I'm like you. I didn't grow up. Uh, knowing any of that, your parents had the, the wherewithal to give you some good insight, but I, I didn't have any of that. And so I had to learn that the hard way, and it took me many years. And uh, But now it's great because I get to work with entrepreneurs and hopefully help speed up their learning curve so that they don't have to take as long to learn that. Right. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that's fantastic. So uh, keeping along this topic here, um, what are some of the obstacles that entrepreneurs face when it comes – to sales. I know it's not all in her game. Yeah, you know what? I, I love, 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 love this question. So let me tell you a couple of things that are super important. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I don't sugarcoat this, so I want your listeners to hang on to their seats, Adam, because I'm about to get oh, up I'm all in your Kool-Aid. I'm okay? hanging on. I'm hanging on. I'm ready. Bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it. Exactly. <laughs> Recently, I was interviewed at a huge coaching conference, and, uh, and, and I was, you know, in this particular day, I was the main speaker, and they asked me a very specific question. And I know that a lot of your listeners are consultants and coaches and entrepreneurs, and so here it goes. The question they asked me was, did I feel like you had to be a really strong salesperson in order to be a really effective coach? And I said, no, right? You don't have to be a really strong salesperson to be a really great executive coach or business coach or any kind of coach that you are. However, you do have to have very strong sales skills to be a successful entrepreneur, period, right? There is no shortcut. 
you have to sell yourself, your vision, your company, all of that has to take place. And so I don't believe that you can have a successful business and have a mentality of, I just don't like sales. I'm just no good at it. I just can't do it. All that stuff. Because if you want to eat, you better get on board and figure out how to sell yourself, your product, your service, and whatever else you have under your belt. There is no shortcut. So the obstacles that a lot of entrepreneurs face is that they have an image of what sales is, and therefore they automatically shy away from it. But I'm here to say that you have to get selling skills down to a science. You've got to get good selling skills in order to run a successful business. Now, because, you know, I, I coach coaches, right? So there are some coaches that have PhDs, double PhDs. They are fantastic once the client's on board. But, you know, you've got to get the client, right? You've got to turn that prospect into a paying customer. And so it really is important. And one thing that I spend a lot of time with, with uh, entrepreneurs, and that's actually why I started and created the High Ticket Selling Made Simple course. It was designed to simplify for those people who don't have a background in sales, you know, which is a lot of entrepreneurs, it was to simplify the sales process so that they, in fact, could get the basic skills needed in order to, you know, gain more customers, have your customers convert, buy more stuff, buy bigger stuff, and tell all their friends about you. So I, I, I would just say the obstacles is really entrepreneurs just have to come to grips that you are a salesperson first. And then whatever, you know, business you own, that becomes secondary. You have to take on the mentality of, I am a salesperson who happens to sell, you know, whatever it is that you do. Yeah, and that's very true. I mean, people go into entrepreneurial ventures thinking, well, uh, I'm a plumber. I'm, a, I'm an HVAC person. I have a grocery store. I'm a fruit seller. I sell cell phones. Uh, you have a technical expertise or some sort of intellectual brilliance that puts you in business. Like I'm very brilliant at the things I do. But as an entrepreneur, your very first role is to sell because if you don't sell, you don't eat and the people that work for you don't eat. Right, exactly. And you know what's really interesting, and I know that you can appreciate this, especially coming from the marketing side, that a lot of times what people will do is they'll get super excited about the marketing stuff because that's fun and it's flashy and it's, you know, blingy and just like who, it's creative and who doesn't want to do the marketing piece. But if you do marketing successfully, you still have to convert, right? <laughs> like, okay, you get all these leads, but they mean nothing if they don't actually convert to a paying customer. So that's where the sales piece comes into play. And so one thing I always share with clients is marketing is good. You've got to, obviously, you've got to fill that pipeline. Um, but, you know, marketing costs money. It costs money to market, right? It doesn't cost money to close and to convert. And so that's where you're going to get the biggest percentage increase is just if you can increase your conversion ratio. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, but you have to, you know, kind of look at your numbers all the time in that way. So it's how many leads do I get in? How many can I convert? How often do they buy from me? You know, all those different kind of numbers that are not fun, not sexy, but certainly makes the differentiator between those who run successful, profitable businesses and those who do not. Right. I think that's very true. Now, um, now we have a few uh, questions that were pre-submitted by people who knew you were going to be on the on the show today, and I wanted to uh, get through a couple of those that I think uh, relate to this topic. Now, this first one 
does not maybe perhaps directly relate to the topic of high ticket selling made simple, but I'm going to make the argument that it does. And this is a very, very, very common issue among business creators and entrepreneurs, uh, particularly people who render intellectual services, like, you know, like you have your accountants, you have your coaches, consultants, lawyers, doctors, people who render a professional service, in other words, and they want to raise their rates. And we're not talking about a cost of living increase. They recognize that they've been undercharging and basically disrespecting the market for the longest time with their ridiculously low rates. We're disrespecting the market, disrespecting themselves, and they need to raise their rates to get themselves back to where the market uh, knows that they belong and where they deserve to be. So they need to do two things. Uh, number one, they need to uh, go to their existing customers and get them on the path to getting them up to the new rates. And they need to let the rest of the world know that uh, regardless of what they heard about them before, these are the rates now. So uh, mm -hmm. what gets in the way of that happening, uh, and what can we do to help facilitate that? Okay, so specifically your question is, you know, for new customers, and, and even existing customers, how do you raise your rates and yet still keep the customer happy, if you will? Is that correct? Pretty much, yes. Okay, cool. So the very first thing is, let's talk about, let's kind of break it down into two different sections. So let's think about the existing customer. And you're right, Adam. This is a struggle sometimes for people who sell intellectual properties, right? So professional services. It's much, at least the perception is, it's easier to sell a tangible product because people can touch it, smell it, feel it, you know, and therefore they can wrap their heads around the price. But when you're right. selling a product that's a service, they can't touch it, it sometimes that's the struggle is that people feel like, well, how do I charge? more. Here's what I would tell uh, anybody first, and I, and I do work with this with my clients as well, it's a struggle. You've got to at least first understand the value that you bring to the table. That's the first thing. So you do have to know what your competition is, who they are, what they sell, what's different, what are they doing better than you, what are you doing better than them. So you've got to go through those, you know, fundamentals, right, so that you then in fact can justify why you're going to, you know, charge a higher rate. So first uh -huh. I'll talk about the mindset, and then I'm going to talk about the technique of how do you do it, right? So let's right. say on the mindset part, you've got to have that real conversation with yourself. What is your unique value proposition? What is it that you do that nobody else can do? And, and be really specific about that because that's what's going to drive you being able to ask a different price than Joe Blow down the street. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is when you start talking to your customer about or prospect about the value that you bring to the table, you want to be able to be really specific with it. No, no kind of just, um, you know, it, it's interesting. This is why sales technique is important. You don't want to wing it. You don't want to just talk about anything that comes off the top of your head. You really want to come on and approach your prospects and or your clients from a very consultative perspective so that you're focused in on trying to understand what their problem is, help them solve their problem, and by giving them a solution. And once you do that, and this is true for all of us, it's human nature. If I have a big enough problem or I'm going through enough pain points, I'll pay anything to relieve myself of this pain, right? And, and we all right. do that. That's human behavior. And so what we want to do is, to me, it comes a lot down. I'm going to kind of back us up even further. It really comes down to you as a salesperson 
being able to ask really good questions to get down to the core of what exactly it is. Why are we having this conversation? Not the surface stuff, right? Because a lot of times what happens is if you don't have technique, you'll ask questions and the questions are very leading because you're asking a question that you kind of already know the answer to in hopes that they yeah. answer it a certain way so then you have the opportunity to jump into why your product makes sense. That's a, such an old school, horrible way to sell. So you really do want to go about asking questions that you don't know the answer to, right? So that together, you two can figure out if this makes sense to even continue on and do business. So there's a lot of technique, and I know we don't have um, a tremendous amount of time, but, you know, one of the things just on the front end when we think about techniques, I always tell people, one, at the very beginning of the conversation, you want to start setting up the close because if you do that effectively, you are actually helping to guide your customer, your prospect, to closing themselves. All right. And so and there's, again, techniques on how you do that, but at least it positions right. you and the customer to start building trust. And now we're going to have a good conversation. So an easy way to do that, Adam, just to give a very specific example, is when I'm talking to a, a prospect on the front end, what I will say is, you know, here's how I like to handle my consultations. The very first thing I want to do is I want to ask you some questions so I understand what it is that you need. And then from there, if I feel like I can help you, then we'll talk about, um, you know, a solution and we'll also talk about next steps, which will include talking about pricing because I'm sure that's something that you would be interested in. If I don't feel like I can help you or I feel like there's someone who's better suited to serve you, then I'm going to point you to something else or someone else. Would that be okay? And they usually say yes and go, great. Now, the reason, Adam, the reason why I set it up that way is I want to get them to bring down any kind of, you know, most people when they think they're going to go in a sales situation, they're they're already kind of like revved up ready, like, you, you know, you're not going to sell me something, right? <laughs> so what I want to do is I want to downregulate that part of the brain that's already on the defense Right, So that's why I will actually release it and say, you know what, I'm not a coach for everybody. So together, you and I are going to figure out if this even makes sense. And if I'm not the best solution for you, I'm going to recommend you to someone else or something else. Is that okay? That automatically starts to get them to downshift. And I can get really geeky on this because this is what I teach as far as the neuroscience of selling. But it gets them to start tapping into the part of the brain that's more uh, geared towards trust and down-regulating the part that's geared towards not trusting you. Okay? Now, the reason why that's important is I've already told them at the end, if I feel like I can help you and I offer you a solution, then I'm going to talk about next steps, which will include price, right? So I've already positioned that. Yeah. So there's, a, you know, again, I, I, I'm trying not to kind of be all over the place. Tell people, check out my website. There's a lot of free information on this, right? But, but it's important right. how you set up the conversation so that your buyer is literally not being burdened and they really get a sense that they trust you and that you really do have their best interest in mind. The minute they have that feeling, they're going to open up the floodgates and tell you everything you want to know. Now, the reason why that's important going back to raising your rates is if I feel, if you, you know, if I'm the prospect or the buyer, and I feel like you get me, you understand me, you've offered a solution, you're not trying to sell me, you're trying to, you know, actually help me solve this problem, then talking about the rates become a moot point, right? Um, because yeah. you're just looking for relief. Now, going back to the rate side of it, there's a technique that I'll share with your listeners that I recommend that everybody do. I do it all the time myself, and it's called a preemptive strike. Okay, so now I'm getting more into technique. But a preemptive strike means if I know that 
I'm going to have an objection, because for the most part, we all know the same objections we're going to over, we have to face, right? People are going to ask us the same exact two or three things that always come up. So in my world, I'll just use my business as an example, I'm one of the more expensive coaches here in, uh, you know, well, in the area of, in Dallas, but just in, in general. And so I know that the price is going to come up, right? So a preemptive strike means that I bring up the price myself. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up so that I can control the message, and I don't have to flounder all over, you know, which doesn't give people confidence, right, when they ask you the question about price. So here's the way that you do a preemptive strike. Now, I've already told them at the end, if I feel like I can help you, I'm going to talk about that, and together we'll talk about next steps, which will include price. I've already set that up on the front end. Now let's say I've asked them a lot of questions I didn't know the answer to. I really understand what it is that they need. I've offered up a couple of solutions. Now it's time for me to go towards the close, or better yet, get them to close themselves, right? So what I'm going to do is, because I know that price is going to be an objection because I have to deal with it all the time, I'm going to say to them this way. Let's say I was talking to you, Adam. I'd say, Adam, so listen, here's what I understand that you need. You and I have discussed a couple of different options. You've said that you agree that this would make the most sense for you. So now let's talk about price. Let me first tell you with full transparency, I am one of the more expensive coaches here in the Dallas area, and here's why. Right? And now I'm gonna now I can control the whole thing, right? And then I'm gonna talk about, you know, the different value that I bring to the table or what have you. So my point is in regards to price for whether it's an existing customer or your prospects, people if you're the cheapest, they're automatically gonna think something's wrong. Okay. If you're the highest, they're they're usually okay with it, but then they're expecting you to be able to justify that high price. And you yourself should be able to justify it or else you have no business charging it, right? And so what I would just encourage your uh, listeners to really think about is be okay with the pricing. Bring up the pricing if you know it's going to be an objection. But be um, prepared to justify your price compared to what's going on in the marketplace. Okay, everybody, subscribe to our channel on iTunes so you can download this and go back and listen like 10 times. That is a formula for success that Stephanie has just given you. You got that? I mean, she just laid it out for you step by step how to have that conversation with your audience. That, thank you. That was that, That's one of the greatest shares we've ever had on this show. Yay! I come to serve, Adam. I come to serve. <laughs> That is beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on something here. I'm going to tell you a little story of something that happened with me because I think it links in some ways to the mindset. And this was actually one of the steps in me breaking out of that uh, dollars for time thing. I mean, I'd heard don't trade dollars for time, don't trade dollars for time, don't trade dollars for time. It's one thing to see it and it's another thing to feel it. So here's what I ran into. Uh, I started moving up in the world. I started attracting some affluent clients. So there was this uh, one client that we had. We did a project for them. It went well. Uh, did a second project for them. Went well. And now they come for the third project. And uh, I had a few questions. And as usual, I sent them the paperwork and everything else because it was uh, one of those project-by-project things. So uh, Monday afternoon, I sent them the paperwork. Tuesday morning, I get the following email from him. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, some of the language I'm about to share with you is verbatim. He said, I sure mm -hmm. hope we haven't already lost a whole day on you waiting for a quote okay from me. As you know, 
money is what I have and time is what I don't. And I certainly don't have time for this jacking around. Uh, I know full well that you people can do this. So charge my card and tell me when to expect it, okay? Now, I thought to mm. myself, wow, what a, what a jerk. I should, I should get triggered and run into a safe space on this. I mean, really, come on. How could anybody be so cruel to me? But no, no. <laughs> I knew exactly what he was saying. And what I wrote back is, um, we're going we're gonna to call him Frank, even though that's not his real name. We're going to say, I, I said, Frank, let me just say I am so honored that in the short amount of time we've worked together, we have developed such a high level of trust in each other that we can move forward without having to go through the contractual process. Uh, please note that we have charged $3,700 to your Amex, and you'll see the first draft a week from Friday. And he wrote back, I knew you'd catch on, Grasshopper, with a little smiley face, and he was not a smiley-faced guy. So the fact that he gave one <laughs> uh, tells you something. So what's your reaction to that story? I love it. I love it. So what I'm gathering from the story is he tr you've already built this trust and, and so he knows that you he trusts you and that you've got his best interest in heart and yeah. that he knows that you can get the job done. People who are busy will pay whatever it takes to get it done. Like they don't want the chit chatter and all that. They're just like, what is this going to cost me? And as long as you can justify it, in your case, you had already justified it over and over again because you've already done good work. They already believed that you knew them. You knew that you could get the job done with very little interaction from him. So yeah, he's willing to pay whatever because he just wants that he wants to relieve the pain and move on to what he's got to do. And that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And we love customers like that. And you know what's really great, Adam? And it's a testament to you and your company. When you have those current customers or, you know, usually the current customers that just have that kind of trust with you, they don't they they just want you to do it. And you don't have to go through a whole lot of time and energy and effort. They want it done. You know what to do. You know what needs to be done. You're the expert in your space. And that's the one thing I would say uh, that you know, people have to really grab hold of. People are paying you to be the expert in your space. When you're dealing with the, uh, the affluent, a lot of times what happens is people can get intimidated by their wealth, right, or their title or their position. But the fact of the matter is they're experts in their space, but you are an expert in your space. And therefore, you should be able to, with complete confidence, command whatever price you may, you know makes sense for what it is that you're offering. And don't let, whether it's the C-suite or the fact that they're, you know, a high net worth individual or uber wealthy individual, don't let that cloud the issue and mess around with your self-confidence, self-esteem, self-worth, and all that, because that will impact how you charge pricing. Right, and so so I love that story. I love the fact that you proved yourself, and he didn't want he did he just like charged me whatever, and so I can move on, and you can get the job done. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, yeah, and see, the lesson for me that day was that affluent customers are fun because uh, mm -hmm. chances are, if they've even contacted you in the first place, and there was a, there's a there's sort of a a prelogue to this story right here. The first time this guy ever reached out to me, and I went into my usual. Uh, spiel that I've been taught and conditioned to do about showing all the great things we do. And they actually cut me off and said, I already know all that. I've done the research on you. If I didn't think that you could do this job, uh, I would never have called you in the first place. I already know you're qualified. Uh, I just, uh, if you need a few minutes to get to know me and make the decision that I fit in your busy schedule, that's perfectly fine. But just know you have a customer ready to pay right now. 
thinking. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. You know, yes. You know what's really great about that? Here's the deal. Over 80% of all prospects will have done the research, right? They've looked us up on the Internet. They've gone to our marketing, you know, information. They've looked at all that stuff. So by the time they are actually able and ready to have a conversation with us, they've, you're, to your customer's point, they've already done the research. So here's what I always tell uh, my clients. When you finally have that opportunity to talk to them, what you do not do is become a walking, talking website, right? Anything that they right. could have already pulled off your website, looked and found out information, if you start regurgitating that same stuff, you've now not added any value to the conversation and you've wasted their time. And so what you want to do is just know that, like know the stats, know that 80%, I think it's 87% was the last number I looked at, uh, when people, by the time they agree, because we're all busy, right, by the time they agree to actually talk to you, whether it be on the phone or to have a meeting, it's because they've already done the research. Now yeah. they just may have a couple of questions or they want to make sure that you have the opportunity to ask them questions, make sure it's a fit. But for the love of God, whatever you do, don't go in there and kill the deal because you're going through step one, step two, step three. You know, it's like, no, they've already done all that. And with the Internet, it makes you change the game as far as how you sell uh, and how you approach customers and prospects. The Internet has changed everything. So I love that. That's a great story, and I think it's a really good one for your listeners. Don't go in and show up and throw up and keep talking about how great you are and how your product's fantastic and all that stuff. Nobody cares. What they care about is what will your product or service do to make my life, my job easier. That's all they care about. And so they've already got a pretty good feel because they've done all the research. And likewise, we as business owners or salespeople have to also have done a lot of research. So by the time we get in there, we already know, you know, where we need to go with the conversation, at least to get it initially started, so that they can confirm or, you know, have us uh, redirect what it is that they need. So that's why it's important to ask questions that you don't already know the answer to. So I love that story. Yeah, I, I mean, and this is what we see so often is people go into salesperson mode, and I've had to break myself out of that as well. If somebody has approached me where I didn't go out and approach them first, if they're approaching me, it's mm -hmm. best to assume in most cases they've already done their research. They've pretty much already made the decision. The, this phone call or this uh, exploratory consultation or whatever label you put on it isn't about them trying to figure out if we can do the job. It's more a question of us figuring out of them and them figuring out of us if we want to work with each other uh, more than anything else. I right. Mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's, exactly. it's really about personalities at this point. So, uh, and, that, and that's the beautiful yes. thing about affluent buyers. I, I, I still remember this one case mm -hmm. where this is when I was first starting out in business, 2006, I think it was. And uh, we had this prospect come in, and, and this will give you a nature of where we were then versus where we are now and how many times the world has mm -hmm. gone around. Uh, we were talking about a $300 <laughs> project, all right? So, uh, oh, my God. So, mm -hmm. so got the information on the $300 uh, project, and she literally, she called back the next day, and she was crying on the phone because what? She, had thought, she had thought that it was going to be $200, and she didn't understand how her business was possibly – going to make it or something like that and uh and then she went this whole thing about well i guess i'm gonna have to get a part-time job to afford this and and i already have a part-time job and everything else so really the idea was uh, we were dealing with uh 
how do I say this? How do I say this with you know, all political correctness and, and gentleness? She was a complete <laughs> freaking loony is what she was. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, I, so, I, so I basically had to end that one with uh, good luck and I hope everything works out for you. And then the funny thing is uh, then right. we get a voice from her two days ago, and she says, so this, this project, I've been waiting to get started. I just need to know, is it 200? Is it 300? It's like, bye. <laughs> so, uh, so the, reason I share that, the reason I share that one is because, and again, I mean no malice toward this woman. I hope she worked everything out, and I can't even remember her name, actually. But if I were to remember the name, I would hope that I would Google her, and I would see that she's a, a leading luminary in her niche, and she's got all the wealth, success, and happiness that any human being deserves. I, I hope she all got it all worked mm-hmm. out. But the fact is, is um, as a salesperson, it's not your job to work things out for people like that. It's your job to deliver your solutions, and your job to protect your business, among other things. So yes, one of the beauties I love of that. With, one of the beauties of dealing with affluent customers is two things you don't have to deal with. Having a debate over whether something should be two hundred and fifty or three hundred and fifty dollars is number one. And number two is uh having to write these thirty five page checklists of things that you say you're going to do for them only so they can spend the entire time of the project trying to squeeze more things in. And then when you come to the point where you can honestly say you've checked all the things off, they come back to you and say, no, you didn't do any of that. I mean, I had this one client who – I had this one client who kept going back to uh, trying to assume that things were in the agreement that didn't, that weren't in the agreement. Like, for example, that uh, there was this one big thing that we were going to do, but the agreement specifically said that that very thing was the responsibility of clients who provide, not us to provide. It was very clearly laid out. And uh, every time we came mm-hmm. back to the same conversation, she would say, oh, I don't know where the agreement is. I'm not sure if I've ever seen it. So then I, so then I get to the point where <laughs> – I, you know, I've checked with myself and the other person I had helping me with the project, and we both agreed that we were done with everything, and we told her, congratulations, we're now into the Q&A period. Well, guess what? Suddenly she found the agreement. Mm, exactly. And the thing is, she, she talked a lot of hot air, a lot of hot air, because yeah. – we did deliver all the things, and in fact, in the email that accompanied that, I even mentioned some things that we hadn't even agreed to that we ended up throwing in, but uh, this is somebody who, when it really came down to it at the end of the day, uh, they were just looking to get as much as they could for as little as they could, and I hate to say that, but you have these out there. So when you get to dealing with the affluent customer, you have the person who has all the money and none of the time. All you got to do is do a real nice job, throw in a little extra to let them know you really appreciate them, and they're just happy because you're keeping their wheels turning. Yeah, and you know what? That's a good that's a good reminder, I think, for everybody that not every customer is a good customer, right? And that's like people have to come to grips with that, and that's why it's really important on the front end that you are very specific about what who is your ideal customer, not you know because uh, where people can get very desperate, especially if they own businesses or what have have you, is they'll take any customer, 
And that will, it's like, that's like a, that's a, that's a, that's a bad direction to go. Figure yep. out, you know, who are your ideal customers? And the easiest way to do that is just to figure out all the customers I have, the ones that I love working with, what are the common denominators that they have, right? And that helps you kind of scope out where you should be looking for your ideal customer. And then also, too, I always say make sure, like, I know the customer that I'm looking for is the customer that can afford an extra mortgage payment, not an extra car yep. payment. Right? There's a difference. You know, if you can afford an extra car payment, oh, yeah. that's great, but you're not my customer. If you can afford an extra mortgage payment, now we can talk, right? And so you've yeah. got to be really specific about, you know, who it is that you're working with. And I agree with you a whole hundred percent. You're going to work just as hard and, and, and less aggravation with people who have the money. They see your value. They understand. It's not about the cost to them. It's about how do you make my life, my job easier, right? And they see the value because you've been able to articulate it and why you're different and why you command a higher price and, quite frankly, why you're worth it. And more importantly, when you've done your questioning on the front end effectively, then they quickly understand that you do, in fact, uh, understand their issue. You've offered up a couple of solutions that you think would make a lot of sense yep. for them. They trust you because of the conversation. And when you've done all those things right, the sale, the close of the sale is actually the easiest part of the whole process. And honestly, the client should be the one starting to close themselves. And you'll know when they're going to close modes because they'll start asking things like, okay, well, this is great. So when could we get started? Or how did yes. your payment process work? Or, you know, yes. those kind of questions, then what every person needs to do is stop selling and start closing, right? Make the shift right away because there's yeah. no, no longer a need to keep selling the clients. Clients already closed. They're sold. Now they just need to know the particulars, right? Um, and that's when yeah. they're into the closed mode. And you let them just guide. You let them close themselves at that point. So I love, exactly. love, love. That was a great story because it's okay. Okay, the best thing you can do and the most empowering thing you can do is to learn how to say no to a customer or a prospect that really isn't your ideal prospect because they're going to be a headache to work with. And though you may right. make some money in the long run, the mental and emotional stress that you're going to go through nickel and diamond with them, it's just not going to be worth it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, we know we have to get you off the phone in a couple minutes because you have another place you got to be. And for our listeners, I'm going to share an mm -hmm. anecdote about what Stephanie just said that backs up what she said after she's gone. So I do want to squeeze in one more question. Very important. How should business creators be using social media to foster that website conversion conversation that, you know, that leads to the sale in such a way that it helps them do the high ticket sales? Like what should they be doing with their social media? Yeah, they've got to first designate themselves as that expert in their space, right? So social media is a really yeah. good opportunity for that, whether it's through your post or you're, you know, writing relevant content or you're doing videos, any of those things. And I would say also be mindful of the image. I'm always shocked how many people will put things out there that it's just like, ugh, that's not a good representation of your brand, right? So, right. you know, if you've got, let's say, LinkedIn, make sure it's a professional, you know, headshot. If that's, if, because if you're going to, let's put this like, A-list players want to work with A-list players, right? Uber wealthy people, high net worth individuals, they don't want to work with bottom feeders. And so everything that you do as far as your social media footprint is concerned, it needs to be consistent with your brand. So in our case, like you and I, we're talking about high-ticket selling, then that means everything you look at that, you know, out there in the social media world, at least for me, needs to be of high-ticket quality, right? Um, I can't have some shot that I just did, you know, you know, it just doesn't, it's just not a good reflection of the brand. So make sure that you are 
definitely putting out their relevant content so that you're giving and you're serving and you're not always trying to get. Um, make sure that that is your voice is consistent in the marketplace that you know, um, and that you have a consistent look and feel to your brand. So that's the first thing. Second thing is if you decide to do a lot of free information, which I'm a big fan, I think that, you know, uh, you want to court people first, right? You can't just go and ask people to marry you. So, you know, any kind of information that you do put out there, make sure it's relevant. Make sure that it shows your strength, that you do know what you're talking about. And, and of course, you know, again, if it's consistent with your brand, have some fun with it. Like you and I automatically clicked. We, you know, we didn't prep for this or anything, and I can tell you, right. you know, we've got a relationship building because we're, 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 we're talking the same language, and that's that's ideal. You know, that's what ideally your clients want, or your you know your particular listeners should be wanting to focus in on is how do I attract the ideal customer for me? And the ideal customer for you is someone that gets you, and you get them, and therefore the conversation becomes very natural versus forced. Right. So I would just say social media is a great avenue. You should definitely be on social media, but just be mindful of everything that you're putting out there that needs to have a purpose and a plan behind it. So you're not just half-heartedly throwing stuff out there and not thinking through the ramifications of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what you're trying to say is we definitely should spend all of our time on social media posting political negativity. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, never, and that's another thing, right, like one of the things that we talked about is, uh, you know, trust and distrust, right, so I'll leave you with this really quick thing, I, I told you I'm a little geeky on the neuroscience side of selling, and so when yeah. you think about building trust or distrust, right, there's two different parts of the brain, which is where tr trust is built in one part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, distrust is built in a different part of the brain, the fight and flight side of it. Now, the fight and flight side of it, which is our oldest part of the brain, some people will call it the reptilian brain, that's where distrust, and the minute people start feeling like they don't trust you, um, the brain, the neurosciences, the brain starts kicking into let me handle the threat, right? But also, more importantly, it starts to produce cortisol and testosterone. So chemically, your brain starts to produce things subconsciously, and so you want to be mindful of that. So that the reason why that's important is if in your business you have strong feelings about, you know, political stuff or, you know, all kind of controversial things, keep it to yourself because when you look Seriously. at doing business with people, people want to do business with those who they like and trust and so on and so forth. If they feel like, that, you know, they just have a completely different um, stance than you do on those controversial issues, that's going to automatically trigger the brain subconsciously to start creating chemicals that will not work in your favor and you're not going to get them to like you or trust you or want to do business with you so stay away from that stuff it's fine to do it with your friends and all that but it has yeah. no place in business that's not what we're there for we're there to serve the customer and to get them to understand that we get your problem we're here to solve, help you solve it and you know here's what it's going to take so and that has nothing to do with politics or any of that other stuff that's very right. controversial these days exactly so i know you got to jump uh Stephanie Chung, I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's been an honor and an education. I think that was a great place to leave off. So, um, again, thanks for joining us. And uh, everybody else, uh, just hang out for a few minutes. I'm going to share some closing thoughts. Stephanie, uh, you know, of course, has to run to be on another call. Adam, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've had a ton of fun. Thank you so very much. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. So for okay. everybody. Bye-bye now. All right. See you now. All right. So for everybody else, um, 
as I said, Stephanie had uh, another uh, – she actually had, I believe, a, a television appearance she has to be on in 15 minutes. So uh, she was very gracious with her time and joining us here at the Business Creators Radio Show. And there's an anecdote that I mentioned I was going to share earlier that uh, I think really backs up one of Stephanie's great points here. Uh, years ago, a friend of mine used to work in an art gallery where they sold paintings and sculptures and vases and things like that. And this is one of the things that my friend taught me that has stuck with me over the years. Uh, people would, he would see people who worked with him, some of the other salespeople, who would immediately go into describing the object when somebody had already said that they wanted it. For example, uh, let's say that there was a painting hanging on the wall, and that painting had a history in terms of its previous owners, where one of the previous owners was the quarterback of the local NFL football team. So they would share that as part of the history after the people already said, hey, you know what, that would look really great on our mantle. I think we should take it. When somebody says, we'll take it, when somebody says, that's great, there are only two things. This is what my friend taught me. There are only two things that he is supposed to say to that customer from that point forward. Well, actually, three things. First thing is, excellent choice. Will that be Visa or American Express? Second is, were you just going to carry it out of here? Do you need us to put some packaging in it? Third is, do you need help carrying that to your car, or do you need to ship it to somebody? That's it. Because the sale's already been made. You don't have to keep selling something when they've already said yes. I also want to refer you to another episode of the Business Creators Radio Show that we hosted several weeks ago with Dan Locke. That's Dan, L-O-K, Locke. And he made a very important observation. Once you get to a certain level of coaching and consulting, people will hire you more for who you are than what you do. I'm paraphrasing him, but the gist of it is, is when you are seen as the industry leader, when you are seen as the all-knowing guru, and everybody's talking about it, and that's the perception you're leaving, you're going to get people who want to work with you, not because you're a coach or a consultant or an accountant or a doctor or what have you, and you have skills A, B, C through X. They're going to want to work with you so they can be working with the best. When they see that you are the best, they want to work with you. It is assumed you have all the qualifications, the trainings, the certifications, the degrees. That's all assumed. You don't have to sell that. What they want is to work with you. So in working with affluent buyers and getting into high-ticket sales, my final thought is what you want to do is listen to everything that Stephanie Chung just shared with us. Go listen to some of our other episodes on high-ticket sales and selling to the affluent buyer and Think about what you need to be doing with your sales scripts and your interactions with prospects right now to change the conversation so that instead of you trying to persuade them that they need to hire you, make it them persuading you that they are worthy of becoming one of your customers, earning for themselves the right to give you money in exchange for value. When you can accomplish that, high-ticket selling becomes so much easier and it becomes so much fun. That's what I want to leave you with today. So again, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes 
at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And be sure to find us and subscribe to us on iTunes so you can get this great information, including the replay of what Stephanie Chung has shared with you today. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.